Sleepy Hollow is a place like no other. A place where the forces of good and evil collide for the fate of the world. Prophecies foretold witnesses destined to protect us all. But will they prevail? Armed with keen insights and the ability to see into dark realms. Well, maybe. Barb and Steve help decipher The Witness Prophecies, a fan podcast dedicated to Sleepy Hollow on Fox. Welcome back, Sleepyheads. This is episode 43 of Witness Prophecies. I'm Steve, and in my day, a road trip required more than simply a credit card. And I'm Barb, and I believe this is what is known as brain freeze. Oh my gosh. All right. That was a great episode, and that did freeze my brain. But today, we're going to be discussing the sixth Sleepy Hollow episode of season four entitled Homecoming, which was written by Joe Webb and directed by Jim O'Hanlon. They crammed so much stuff into that episode, Steve, I couldn't believe it. I know. It was amazing. All the season one callbacks, the bonding of the team, the flashbacks, the dealing with Abby not being there, and the team coming together better than ever before. It just It was astounding. So we got a boatload of stuff to talk about today, don't we? <laughs> yes, we do. Should, well, should... let's get us. A- Started with the recap, Barb. Okay, Steve, here we go. Crane, Jenny, Diana, Alex, and Jake head to Sleepy Hollow to find the final piece of the Philosopher's Stone before Malcolm Dreyfus, but discover that a Sphinx is guarding it. Crane and Diana find the final talisman, and Jenny, Jake, and Alex defeat the Sphinx, but the moment of victory is brief as Crane suddenly vanishes. Dreyfus found Job in the field where Ansel left him, and they are now in Sleepy Hollow. Job whisked Crane away with him to a replica of the battlefield where Crane and the Headless Horseman fought in 1781, the place where Dreyfus plans to become immortal. Crane learns from Dreyfus that Benjamin Banneker also knew Crane was a witness and that George Washington sent Crane to the battlefield against Headless, knowing it could kill him but save the young nation. As Dreyfus and Job begin the immortality spell with blood from both Crane and Headless, Jenny, Diana, Jake, and Alex rush to save Crane. The area explodes and Team Witness is safe, later going to a local establishment to celebrate and to bond together. In the final scene, we see Dreyfus rising from the debris, alive and apparently immortal. In the most touching moments of the episode, Jenny looks around the archives while telling Diana about her sister, and Crane visits Abby's grave and has a lovely conversation with his dear friend, finally leaving her with her very own Headless Horseman bobblehead. That was so awesome. And I'll tell you, you know, we'll talk about it, but boy, oh boy, you watch it one time and you get emotional, and then you watch it the second time, and and you're and right before the commercial break, you're like, where's that box of Kleenex? I'm going to need that. Yeah. <laughs> so, but we have to have some news first before we can jump right in, Steve. So what have you got for us this week? All right. Ratings news for Episode 4, The People vs. Ichabod. As you know, our final ratings was a 0.6 and a 2 share in 18 to 49 with 2.16 million viewers. The live plus 7 days ratings are in, and it tied for 22nd in adults 18 to 49 percentage gain, going from a 0.6 to a 1.0 for an increase of 67%. Very nice. And it tied for 14th in viewers percentage gain, 
going from 2.158 to 3.468 million viewers for an increase of 61%. And this is great because, as we had indicated last week, the UK hasn't even begun watching yet. That's right. They're still 10 days away from getting episode one. Yeah, these numbers have nowhere to go but up. Yes. And episode five, Blood from a Stone, the final ratings were 0.5 and a two share in 18 to 49 with 1.83 million viewers. Episode six, the preliminary ratings, a 0.5 and a two share in 18 to 49, but an increase up to 2.03 million viewers. Nice. And I can tell you, Twitter was alive and well on Friday night uh, while the show aired in all three time zones. Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I know here in the, you know, in the, as I love to call us, the forgotten, the forgotten time zone, the one I'm in, not the popular one that you're in, we actually did uh, manage to uh, trend and get into the top 10. I think we were sitting at like five or six when I tweeted that out. And so that was fantastic. Sure was. And I, of course, it tweeted the East Coast as well. And I'm sure it trended in the West Coast, too. So how about some ratings uh, for this episode, Steve? I think that it was uh, generally a hit. Yes, it was. I gave it nine original Slim Jims. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. And I gave it nine Headless Horseman bobbleheads, and I really want one for Christmas this year. Big time. Yes. Annette said it was good. Lots of twists. She gave it an 8.5. Linda gave it nine cups of blue raspberry high fructose Slurpees, and they looked really, really, really good. Nice, Linda. Julie gave it eight Sphinx Demons. Justina gave it 10 out of 10 tons of Raven's Claw merchandise purchased off the internet. Perfect. And then Kelly, Kelly was with me. She gave it nine headless bobbleheads as well. I'm surprised we didn't have more bobblehead ratings. I thought that's what everyone would do, but huh, what do I know? Yeah, everybody knows that that's going to be the <laughs> the one that everybody was wanting to use. So, All right, oh, so why don't we get started with uh, Team Witness here this week and Ichabod, because this certainly uh, had a lot to do with them, but it had a lot. It really had a lot to do with just about everybody, I think. Yes, it really did. And, of course, we open with Crane and Diana in a truck stop convenience store, and Crane's uh, lusting over the snacks. Goes into this nice long uh, diatribe about how uh, Slim Jims were actually created and done in the olden days. <laughs> uh, when he when he started talking about how you had to hunt game and ha set a snare and then and then he what skin and gut it and prepare a carcass and I'm going gross really do I have to visualize this in my brain? <laughs> and then of course he drinks his um, Slurpee a little too fast and gets brain freeze. <laughs> That was funny. Yes, it was. Now, as they're back in the vehicle and approaching Sleepy Hollow, he does kind of tell Diana a little bit about everything that he's lost and what he's gained. You know, he lost his wife, he lost his son, but he gained so much more as well when he learned that he was a witness. And we had those nice flashbacks, too, while he was sitting in the car. Yes. When he oh. first arrived in Sleepy Hollow and almost got run over by the truck. <laughs> yeah, those were some really good ones. Now, Crane realizes that there's too much interference from the ley lines, so the team can't uh, locate the talisman without using one of Jenny's toys. And even that wasn't working too well. 
No, even that was being interfered with. They were able to work around that as well. Now, of course, probably the best moment of the episode, or one of them, was when he takes them to the archives and tells them there's no place like home. Oh, that was, it was awesome to see the archives again. Yes, it was. And it was interesting because clearly it was so much smaller than the vault. Right. And yet it has a sense of intimacy to it. This is where, you know, the team that we were accustomed to, where they worked out all these issues, where they did their problem solving, where they crafted their plans against the supernatural in there, where they were a team together. And it was, so to watch a brand new team come in and look at it with brand new eyes and the different takes that each of them had on that too. Right. Yep. Jake, I think that was when he finally began to feel like he was in Sleepy Hollow. Yeah, but he was still gaga, just like, wow, look at all this stuff in here. But I think that he also recognized that his vault was bigger. But yeah. he was still he still wanted to see what was there. Yes, books and books and uh-huh. books. And we know he's a bookworm. He know, he boy, he's a smart bookworm. Yes, he is. Now Ichabod finds his old letters from Washington and him and Diana start going through them to see if they might run across some information on the philosopher's stone and sure enough they've come up across, come across one letter that reveals that Benjamin Banneker met with George and that he had found the Philosopher's Stone and they decided that it would be best to cut the stone into four pieces and they would safeguard the pieces. But before they cut it up, they need to use it once. And Banneker did not think that was a good idea at all. No, he didn't. He was not for that at all. And, you know, we've talked about the fact that there isn't a lot of history about Benjamin Banneker because all of his papers were destroyed in that mysterious fire as he was being laid to rest. Right. But I think that at least the way that they portrayed him last night was probably very true to his character about standing up for what he believed in, at least based on the writings that they have of his that uh, were in other people's hands and therefore were not in the fire. And so I liked that because we know, of course, that none of this was historical by any stretch of the imagination because there was no magical philosopher's stone. But the fact that they managed to keep him in a character that that remained true to who the man was, I enjoyed that. Yes, that was really great to see and how he was able to stand up to George and say, hey, this is wrong. I don't agree with this. Now, of course, Crane is easily identifies the archer guarding the talisman as a sphinx, which everybody kind of gave him a, a look like, what you talking about? I know exactly. <laughs> but he explains it, and sure enough, it is. A little uh, shout out to uh, Stargate there from Mr. Webb, or, or maybe not Joe, but at least the... Um, the uh, crew that designed the uh, headgear for uh, the Sphinx, because it definitely uh, had a Stargate vibe to it. Uh, nice. Of course, Crane finally realizes that not only was it Jefferson, Franklin, Katrina, and Washington all knew that he was a witness, but now Banneker also knew it, and Washington ordered them all not to tell him. You know, he kept a pretty stiff upper lip about that. Yes, he did. And it was a little curious that 
he was able to do that. I kind of was a little surprised. I kind of thought he might, you know, get a little bent out of shape, but, and maybe if he'd have found that out without having something going on, he might have, we might've saw a nice little tirade from him, but I think probably because they were in such dire straits that he puts personal feelings aside and focuses on what needs to be done. He was a soldier. Yes, he definitely was soldiering on regardless of what he was finding out. And Diane saw that in him, that, yes, you're you're a good soldier. And I think that's going to probably be the one thing that will bring Crane and Diana closer together as the season goes on, is Diana can identify with him about being a soldier. And I'm pretty sure that she's probably just as much of a soldier as Crane was. So that I think that's going to be real interesting to see as the season goes on. Of course, Crane finds where the talisman is hidden. Fortunately, they use the tunnels and solves the riddle to get inside. The door opens and he picks up the talisman. And then all of a sudden the door closes and Joe pops in. Oops. Yeah. I didn't expect that. So that really no, did I surprise didn't me. Yeah, that that completely surprised me. It was too easy. I mean, here we are halfway through the episode, and we've already got the talisman, and you go, yeah, that's just way too easy. <laughs> yeah, we've had, yeah, we've had a, I think we've had a couple episodes like that where all of a sudden the the monster number one was was dispatched in the first thirty minutes, and you're sitting there like, okay, something's going to go wrong here, right? And of course, Crane disappears with Joe. Yeah, I had tweeted out that they apparated like Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. It just went poof, and they were gone in a puff of smoke. Yes, they were. The look on Diana's face when she does get the door open and nobody's in there, and she just freaks out almost. You know, it's like, what happened? Where'd he go? <laughs> She's yeah, not that, quite used to uh, people disappearing like that. Yeah, that was pretty surprising, too. And she got that door open pretty quickly, so I, I assume that she must have been paying very close attention when Crane solved the riddle and got the door open. Exactly did. She had to have to get it open that fast. Because Banneker was a smart man. And if he, he if he's the one who set that one up in, in Sleepy Hollow and the other three were set up by Washington's folks down in the D.C. area, then I would have to believe that, you know, I mean, Banneker was smart. I would think that the riddle would have been tough, whatever riddle that Banneker would have left for him. Right. Would not have been an easy one to solve. Well, it's probably something from 1781, and which would be why Crane would be easily able to solve it. Right. Now, of course, Crane comes to, and he's on this stone pad, which turns out to be the Philosopher's Stone in the center of it. And sure enough, we have the Fibonacci spiral. Yeah, that's what it looked like to me anyway, when they pulled the camera back and you could take a look at the stone sitting in the middle of this thing. Yep. And, of course, Crane has the flashback and remembers that he and Horseman did fight on the battlefield on the stone where their blood mingled. And it finally hits him that, yeah, George Washington sent him to do this. And did he actually get betrayed by GW? Now, I do have to give um, a shout out because uh, one of our listeners, Deb, had called this, I think, last week because she said that she thought that the stone looked like the one where Crane and Headless, where their, where their blood had gone together. 
And kudos to her because she was dead on. Because I'll tell you what, I I did not remember that from season one. Right. Yeah, I knew there was some kind of design there, but I didn't place it with the Philosopher's Stone. Should have as soon as they said Philosopher's Stone and that it could cause immortality. Now, of course, Crane remembers his last meeting with Banneker and how offset Banneker was with him. You could tell some, you know, something was bothering Banneker and it just, it didn't set right with Crane. You know, he just kind of scratches his head and says, well, okay. And well, it's off to do my duty, whatever that might be. And, um, of course he went to fight the horsemen and ended up both of them dying temporarily in very different ways. <laughs> yeah. Now, of course, Dreyfus shows up and Crane tells him not to give up his soul, but course that falls on deaf ears and it was interesting because pulls out the knife crane's not going to go for that you're not going to give up his blood that easily and job just goes (laughs) out goes comes a hand so job showed off a little more of his power in this episode which makes me wonder but we can talk about that later why he couldn't get himself out of his little cocoon but anyway right yeah so, of course, Ichabod's hands cut, and so is Headless's, and their blood starts following the trail again and mixes, and you think, oh, no, it's going to be over, but in comes the crew to save the day. They free uh, Ichabod, and Headless tries to attack him, but this time when Crane shoots him, it actually stops him. Yeah, and it, you know, when they, when the bullets first hit him and you saw this, these poofs of fire, it looked like. Right. At first I thought, do they have bullets loaded with Greek fire or what? From Dreyfus Industries last week when they fought Ansel. But then that was explained to us afterwards that no, that really wasn't the case. Right. It broke the bond between them by doing it a second time. And of course they explode the place. Everybody survives and. We get to see Crane pausing for a visit at Abby's grave where he tells her the rest of the story. And um, we also see that the lamp was torn from Jenny's grasp and we don't see any sign of Dreyfus. And of course, we do get to see Crane give Abby his uh, fist bump, which was a huge tear jerker for all the sleepy heads. Uh, well, when he said things to her such as, you may have wondered why I haven't come to see you. And, right. and you're like, oh, no. Oh, oh. <laughs> uh, here we go. Rip my heart out of my chest. And he tells her, well, I've, you know, you wanted me to always do new things and try new things. And I've moved to D.C. And Miss Jenny has come with me. And I found a new apartment. And I have new comrades. And, and then he got into some other other things about, you know, how he's really never going to forget her. And you're like, all right, waterworks. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I thought that was, I thought the way that they both portrayed how Crane and Jenny handled being back in Sleepy Hollow was absolutely perfect. I agree. I don't think they could have done it any better than what they did. And of course, as he's finished his nice little spiel about Hogwarts and Raven's Claw gear, and as he gets up, he goes, oh, and I've found this at a vendor in town and it's headless bobblehead. <laughs> that was hysterical. <laughs> yes, it was. 
that was so funny. I was like, oh, I want one. Shiny, shiny. I want it. I want it. <laughs> and so he says, looks at it and goes, yeah, I need to do this and sets it down on her gravestone. That was fantastic. Yes, it really was. And then they all meet up at one of the local pubs and they're bonding some more. And he goes to the jukebox and you were curious to what he was going to pick out. But of course, the the quarter distracts him at first because he sees it's Washington's head on it. And it gives him a minute of pause. You think, is he going to lose it or not? But Diana comes up and, of course, has to utter the most exciting words of the episode, Team Witness. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Joe Webb, for that line. I agree. And, of course, we see the little flashbacks of the old team, Abby, Holly, and Joe. Yeah, and, and I thought that was great. The Each of the flashbacks was very touching because in that flashback as as well, you know, Abby was telling Crane that, you know, he would be family. Mm-hmm. And and he still has he has a family, but it's a different family. But right. he still has a family. So all in all, another awesome episode with Ichabod. So how about Jenny? Well, and Jenny you know, Jenny you could tell was a little bit uptight about coming back. She had uh she had the kids. That she, quote-unquote, wasn't right. babysitting, right? <laughs> yeah. And so she had Jake and Alex in tow with her. I think someone, I think I'd seen on Twitter, well, why didn't they all just go together? And I'm thinking, well, if they were hauling equipment with them and there were five of them, probably would make sense to take two different vehicles right? with all their stuff. So she was definitely, um, like I said, she was definitely a little bit uptight. And if we stop and think about it, after Abby died, she had been traveling remember uh right she, yeah she had to leave she, she left and she there. went over she went overseas she was gone and then she came down to see crane so i'm suspecting they never said it but i'm suspecting this may have been her first visit back oh absolutely both her and crane it was the first time they'd both been back in sleepy hollow yeah definitely his but here she's coming back to the place where not only did she lose her sister she lost her boyfriend as well right a lot of things had happened they're going to come back and fight a monster. And so she's feeling a little edgy about this. I think it was harder for her to deal with some of her feelings and her emotions. And again, it's only been a few months. And so the grieving process is still fully underway. It would be in any normal person. Right. But anyway, one of the toys that she brought along with her was her Judas scepter, which is a dousing rod that is drawn to magic rather than water. And I think, what was it, Alex called it a tuning fork gone wrong? Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at this thing like, yeah, that's pretty big. And so, of course, she had said the, you know, the signal is strong, but it's erratic. So that's when they had to go look at the ley lines and figure out how do we cut out some of the interference from all the strong ley lines. And so when they went into the archives and Jenny was standing where Abby stood in her spot, holding her sister's coffee cup, and she looks like she's just about to get really teary-eyed and you're sitting here like, oh, oh, and it's just so touching because she's looking around, you know, she's taking it in, you know, she's thinking about all of this and about how much she had and about how much she's lost. And then she, she tells Diana, you know, Abby was, she was something special. They all had something special. And she said, there are, are lots of ghosts in this place, but all ones that I adore. 
you just wanted to reach out and give her the biggest hug you possibly could. Absolutely. I was surprised that she didn't mention Joe, though. Yeah. I would would say that's the one thing that the writers missed, if I'm going to be fair about the episode, because the episode was wonderful. But that was the one thing that she probably should have said something about both Abby and Joe. And we did see Joe in the in the flashback, which was good. But Abby's grief is is so great, sister and lover both. Right. And so, yeah, it would have been nice to at least get a line in about Joe there. It really would have. Yeah, unless she was afraid that she was going to completely lose it. And sometimes that's how you are. You just can't say things because you'll break down. Right. And she definitely did not want to break down in front of them. <laughs> no. Well, a not in front of them. Definitely not. But B, because she is Crane's warrior here. Right. She's, she's his BA. And I think that she feels a real obligation and a desire to help, to help him and to help get the, the stuff resolved. And so she needs to remain strong. She really feels that she needs to remain strong and tough. Yes. Yes. No doubt about it. She's definitely trying to pull that from her memories of Abby so that she can be just as tough and strong as abby was and so because of that sometimes when you do become tough like that and you and you're you're trying to gut through it without anybody else's help that's you may accidentally say lash out of people around you and so she did to the kids yeah to to jake and alex because they're like oh wow you know this is a little road trip we're gonna have a good time this is sleepy hollow you know jake is all wide-eyed alex is like mosquitoes camping blah 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 this is like a little town i left behind but Jenny is taking them to get the supplies that she needs for them to build the Faraday cage. And so she turns around and she starts lecturing them about being naive and you know that they could be killed and that they have to be realistic about all the dangers that they face. And she really lit into them. Yes, she did. But, you know, and Jake is kind of like, uh, like he doesn't quite know what to say. And, you know, Alex is back in her face like, okay, yeah, we get it. Right. Uh, at least initially, then. Then they both got a little tougher later on, but that, but you know, Alex is a pretty tough chicken. She wasn't, she wasn't going to, she was only going to take so much of it. You know, she wasn't going to necessarily rock the boat because she doesn't know what Jenny's been through, but you know, she's, ah. but yeah, Jenny was, was angry. And I think yep. again, that's because she was thinking about, you know, what happened to Joe and how Joe died. And, you know, he was turned back into a Wendigo by, you know, a whiny one and just, just all the horrible things that happened. That were not within her control, and try even though she, everything she tried, she couldn't save him. Right, as smart as he was, and Let's, so I'm sure she's worried about the kids. She doesn't want them dying on her watch either. Right. So they all got what they needed. They fired up the scepter. They headed toward the graveyard, and then all of a sudden, whiz, 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 <laughs> arrows, and Jenny pushed Jake out of the way just in time because we saw what those arrows would do because the scepter was poofed by an arrow and. All of a sudden, it you know it turned into dust and kind of disappeared too. Right. So yeah, that's some mighty powerful magic in those arrows. <laughs> yeah, I think that that really was a wake up too for Alex and Jake that what Jenny was telling them was correct, and that then they kind of got it when they saw the when they especially when they saw the scepter go kind of poof. Right. So and so when they went back the second time. To try this again, Jenny wanted Jake and Alex to remain by the truck. And she says that she's, she believed that she was better off on her own and that she's had years of experience. And then they really busted her at that point in time. Right. And she did apologize. And she said, you're right. 
we need all three of us to distract the Sphinx uh, so that Crane can get what he needs and then it would be weakened and then we can kill it. And it did take all three of them to do that. If it had just been Jenny, she could have been poofed too. Indeed. So that's what happened. The three of them then confused the, the Sphinx. They could see it weakening. So that's when they, and they knew that Crane had the last piece of the Philosopher's Stone. They shot it and that was it. Then they had it and then they lost it. Yeah. But at that point in time, Jenny did take over as the leader of the team. When they, right. when they met back at the archives, I mean, th- this was it. She's the number two. She was in charge. And she told the team that they had to be armed and they had to have a plan to go after Crane to get him on Dreyfus's property. She got that lantern, the blessed lantern that was brought over from France by Benjamin Franklin, which we have seen before. And we'll talk about that in the side notes. Yes. But it was made to trap demons and she ha- held it up and she had a couple good lines there. Hey, demon, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Forget this. And he was just like sucked right into the lantern. Yes. So she, she really stepped up to the plate as soon as Crane was gone and she did her part. She became the leader of the team and helped direct them and told them what they needed to do. So once again, Jenny, very tough, very vulnerable, very yes. human. Saves the day once again. She did. What about Diana, Steve? Well, Diana was kind of, I don't know if she was really trying to get Crane to open up because she was always, she seemed to be pushing him about how he felt when he found, you know, found out that Washington didn't bother to tell him that he was a witness. And I think, you know, she really wants to be part of this group now, but she doesn't feel comfortable taking on a lead role yet. Well, I also think that perhaps she was wondering if she had done the right thing by telling Molly. Right. A little bit. Yeah. Now, what if I hadn't told her? What What would the consequences have been? How did you feel about that, right? Right. Yet she should know, okay, what is it? Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. I mean, you're going to have two totally different reactions. Right. So I'm not sure she was just trying to poke and bond and make conversation during their several-hour drive up to... Uh, Sleepy Hollow, because you figure, okay, so from D.C. to Upper New York. All right, so that's going to be one, two, three, four, five. That's probably about six-hour drive, I'm going to guess. Maybe a little longer. Actually, it's probably more like eight hours. So that means that's a lot of of chitty chat time, because you're a witness, and i got to tell my daughter stuff, and you're going to have to help me educate her. Of course, it was really funny to when Crane shows them the uh, archives. Diana calls it Crane's Man Cave. That was really funny. (laughs) Love that line. Because, yes, it was. And, of course, she starts to talk to Jenny and then kind of thinks she got maybe a little too close and says, do you need a minute? And that's when Jenny goes, no, I'm, I'm fine. You know, there's a lot of ghosts here, but they're all ones that I cherish, so. Because I don't think Diana wanted to push Jenny into a breakdown, and Jenny wasn't going to let that happen anyway. And, of course, that's when we get into the idea of what do we tell Molly and what do we not. And, of course, Diana was was against Washington not telling Crane that he was a witness, and Crane agrees that they won't do that with Molly. We'll see how that works. Yeah, because, you know, once you start talking about how we're going to do something this way, you know it's going to happen opposite of that. Exactly. It's not going to go the way you want it to go. And it, once Crane disappears with the last piece, 
Diana kind of got them all thinking along the same lines, at least, because she goes, well, you know, we don't have our magic tracker in the scepter, but so let's go about this a, a different way and let's find the human connection. And that's where Jenny pulls up the records and finds that, yes, Dreyfus had bought some land. And so they figure that's got to be the um, place where they've got Crane. And so Alex and Jake and Diana are all set to set the charges while Jenny is taking care of Job. And, of course, she has to threaten to blow Dreyfus to hell. And oh, That was pretty funny. It's like, Diana, he's kind of probably already going there, okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On one way or another. Don't think you're going to have anything, <laughs> any say in whether or not he goes there. Yeah. But she does get Crane free. And, of course, at the bar, we do get the conversation between her and Crane where she has to spill out the team witness again that they are a team. And thinking about what you said earlier, Jake and Alex already had a relationship. They worked together in the vault. Right. Jenny and Crane already had a relationship. They've been together for several years. Yes. Diana didn't have a relationship with either group. No. So you're probably right. She probably is trying extra hard to fit in. And when you try extra hard to fit in, you usually kind of end up walking all over yourself. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and we saw a little a little bit of that in this episode. Not a lot, but a little. And that's definitely what I think was going on was she was trying, trying too hard. maybe a little too hard to be one of the gang. Trying too hard to fit in. Right. All right. What about Alex and Jake? Well, they arrived in Sleepy Hollow. And of course, Jake is like, he's a gog, right? Because he just thinks everything is so cool. And, oh, wow, we're here. Wow. But then he did say that he expected a Stephen King vibe to it. Right. Which I thought was kind of cute. Well, he got that. He got that pretty shortly. He didn't have to wait too long for that. Right. And Alex is like, look, this looks like a small town that I just left behind, right? I'm a big city girl now. But it was kind of funny to watch their, their different reaction as they came into the town and their different reaction in the archives as well. But it was Alex who said, hey, let's look at the ley line maps. And she was going to be the one to make the Faraday cage that's going to filter out the ley line energy. So she's very good at, at quickly coming up with some of these solutions to these these types of problems or issues. And she knows what she needs to do and how she can do it. We've seen a couple of her very creative devices. I think we're going to see a lot more. And I really do expect to see her and Jenny do a lot more bonding in that area. Right. As we talked about, oh, and then Jake, Jake suggested using the tunnels to go get the talisman. And so that was something that he brought to the table. He said, hey, well, wait a minute. If it's below ground, why can't we just, you know, go down there and get it? And here with all his experience in mapping out the tunnels now below DC, he's like, hey, tunnels, let's go. I'm in. And of course, he was thrilled to death with all the books. Right. I wouldn't surprise me if Crane loaned him a few, kind of to take back his reading right. material on the ride back. Uh, taking but, quite a bit of information back with them. I'm sure that they will. But when they busted Jenny, you know, Alex said, you're always going off on your own, reminding her, look how well that worked out for you. Like back in Aberdeen at the Proving Grounds, that didn't work out so well, right? So she really went off on Jenny about that. And then Jake jumped in and said, wait a minute, it was your plan for the three of us to split up the demon's focus. So... Right. And they said, we don't need to be babysat. We're big boys and big girls, and we can do this. And they did jump in and, and help out. And they basically said, hey, listen, 
you, when you started this, you had to learn. There was a learning curve. You didn't just know everything instantly. It's like starting a new job. So we got to learn too. So help us Mm -hmm. out. And that's pretty much what we had from, from Jake and Alex. But like I said, I think it was a, the episode itself, I think split the time pretty well between all of the characters. So we got a a lot. We got something from each one of them. Right. And it was definitely nice to see the strength that both Alex and Jake had and how determined they were to be part of this. They just weren't going to stand off to the side while everybody else risked their life. They're part of this team and they're willing to risk everything as well. Yeah, they're definitely strong character ads to the show this season. Yes, they are. And they're a lot of fun. And um, I think it's kind of funny for uh, Jenny to have someone else strong pushing back against her. Right. Not something Holly would have done. <laughs> no, no, Holly never would have done that. She and Joe would have Very had a nice, reasonable conversation. He probably would have pushed, but he still, he understood their boundaries. Right. Abby would have pushed back against her. And Crane was, is always polite, Miss Jenny. But here, she's finding someone in Alex who's going to say, uh-uh, no, you don't. I'm another strong woman. And I'm going to say, Hey, I'm going to call, I'm going to call you on stuff. Right. And I, I think that that will help her heal also. Yes. So what about the bad guys this week, uh, Steve? What about our uh, third tribulation team here? Well, good old Malcolm has to go to Texas, try to find Job. And I was so glad it was hot for him. (laughs) Yeah, that was funny. (laughs) Of course, he has to use some magic to try to find where Job is. And sure enough, he's in an what should we call that? That that was almost uh, very fringe-like. It was like a, a translucent grave or cocoon or something in the field. Right. It was very, it was like, wait a minute, you can kind of see through this thing. And why couldn't he zap himself out of it? And the only right. thing I could think of is maybe it's because Ansel is, Ansel wasn't really a demon, although he had been infected or inflicted by so many of them. Maybe it, with Ansel's incantation, Job couldn't get himself out of it. Right. But then, if that would be the case, then why was Dreyfus able to smash the thing open and get him out if it it didn't look that hard? So, right. Hand wave. Yeah, big one. And so you figure, okay, they're in Texas. We know Team Witness is in Sleepy Hollow. So we've got a pretty good head start on them. And yeah, they'll probably be there at the end. But no, they show up at the middle. You go, all right. What, Dreyfus got his own supersonic jet that he flies around in or something? <laughs> Job zapped uh, him and Crane. Well, he zapped himself into the cave, right, with Crane and right. then zapped them both out. Yeah. So, like so I said, they, um, they disapparated or whatever, right? Yeah. They had to. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, though, that was the only way that they could have made it there that Oof. fast. Neat little trick there, Job. Hey, listen, this was all Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very Harry Potter. Yeah, definitely a shout out to Harry Potter. And of course, when Crane does wake up from being poofed, Dreyfus is there in his cape and wanting to have a drink with him and to celebrate immortality. And so that cape that looked like a vampire cape, by the way. Yes, it did. I'm from like, really? That was his fashion statement, apparently. Yeah. I think M. Raven Metzner posted something about that it was just his fashion statement, but I'm not too sure about that. Yeah. There may be more to that than meets the eye. And of course, Dreyfus decides to just spill everything. He had found 
Banneker's document that basically tells that, yes, Washington sent Crane to his death and tells all this to Crane, brings Headless up, and you go, all right, what else are you going to pull out? And sure enough, he admits that he killed Agent Waters as well. Basically, he was just sitting there just taunting Crane. Yes, and it was so much different from the Ansel episode when he was just cowering. And you go, it won't take much to flip his switch again. Yeah, because I, I don't know that the cowering was an act last week. I know, it wasn't. Maybe it's, I don't believe so. Believe so. Uh, maybe it's because he suddenly had his confidence back. The Job was there. The right. Job would help protect him because he gave Job grief about, you're supposed to be at my side per our contract. Oh, exactly. God. Contracts are made to be broken, jerk. Maybe he just felt more confident or that he was now at the brink of immortality and that no one was going to get him anymore. I don't know. Right. Yeah. What a strange little character. <laughs> he sure is. I don't think he made any friends in this episode either. So as much as everybody hated him in that episode, they hate him even more after this one. You know, because, of course, he tells Crane that Washington used and manipulated him and then sacrificed him and anything he could do to try to get a rise out of Crane. And Crane was staying so cool. Wasn't funny. But he was mad. He was ticked. Oh, yeah. you, could, you could tell that. But there wasn't anything he could do about it because he was bound. Right. And. Of course, I think Job was kind of helping keep him in place, shall we say, and prevent him from getting up and taking a swing at Dreyfus. And of course, getting the blood from both of them is what Dreyfus needs to um, make his elixir of everlasting life. It looked like green pute to me. Yeah. And of course, he tells him that the stone's going to need energy and it may take out the whole town, but. He's willing to sacrifice everyone for himself. Yeah, a really, really nice guy. So I'm thinking that was the deal that they cut with Headless down on uh, J Street when they right. let him out of the little yes. cavern there. That they're going to say, okay, I'm going to let you you go out and you get go get whatever head you want. If you want to get the president's head, if you want to take Crane's head, you know, do whatever you want. But when I call you, come back and I need some of your blood. Yep. But otherwise, have a lovely life. Yeah, without telling him that, oh, yeah, it's possible that you could actually die in this. Because, of course, if he would have been there when everything blew up, then, yeah, they'd gotten rid of both Crane and Headless. And Sleepy Hollow, for that matter. Yeah, but it was interesting because Dreyfus was mixing the blood of he who has lived beyond time, which is Crane. So you're thinking that he could die. But Headless right. is living death, right? So maybe yes. he wouldn't have died when all the... Energy got sucked out of all the townspeople and everyone else died. Right. So. More than likely, that's probably what Headless was thinking, at least. With what? His brain? Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't have a head. But he does react, so he knows something. He does. And, of course, we get this scene close to the end where we see Dreyfus stumbling out of the rubble of the explosion with what looks to, like, to be a very large piece of metal or something in his midsection. He sees it, he pulls it out and screams in pain, and you kind of go, aha, you aren't immortal. And then he looks down, and the wound's already completely healed up, and you go, oh, no, not it, no. Yeah, and so he I... knows at this point that, yes, apparently he is immortal. 
or he got a very quick healing fix out of this and maybe he isn't 100 percent mortal yet right yeah yet. there's got to be something because it blew up before everything was done the town didn't die so the stone didn't really draw that much energy so yeah maybe it just got enough energy to give him healing powers which if that's the case then yes there may be a possible way to uh eliminate him yeah of course our monster of the week was the sphinx and it was guarding the last talisman piece and it was interesting that it's um crypt was above ground and not below ground yeah i thought so too and and maybe maybe they thought no one would know that the tunnels were there or something like that because it was sure going after everybody on the grave or maybe there was everyone above ground hard to say right yeah i think that banneker probably knew that having it up high would be a better place for the sphinx to protect the grave because he's up high and he can shoot down on anybody that gets too close yeah maybe so so and of course that's exactly what happens as soon as team witness gets too close to the grave the arrows start to fly and he's pretty much in, unstoppable until crane actually puts his hands on the talisman and that last piece and then he becomes mortal real quick and goes down pretty easily yeah because once jenny uh shot the sphinx it also disintegrated into dust as well yes but that was yeah. interesting because basically it was a what how did crane describe it a a jackal mask and bronze-tipped arrows, and they were Egyptian, and that it was right. a supernatural guard dog. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting little monster. And actually, during the show, Mary Chisholm, who is apparently a costume designer on Sleepy Hollow, she tweeted out a picture, an Instagram, of the early concept for the Sphinx costume, oh, which nice. looked really, really cool. And that's... The, the concept design looked just like some of those wonderful pictures that you would see in the first book. I'm calling it the first book because I think that uh, Tara Bennett and Paul Kelly should do a second book um, yes. in the making of Sleepy Hollow. And that had all the monsters in it from seasons one and two. All right. Shall we move on to side notes? Let's do that, Steve. I think one of the, the, the fun things was the lantern that Jenny had found and she used. Now, this lantern was actually from season one, episode 11, called Vessel. And when Frank Irving's daughter, Macy, had been possessed by the demon, Ankatif, Ginny knew about this lantern. And she was going to go get it, and Abby gave her a hard time, like, no, you're not going to go steal this from the warehouse. So Abby and Crane stole it instead, and then they used it to save Macy. Right. So it was nice to see that they were pulling some of these little artifacts that we've seen in prior seasons back out and making use of them again. Because you should draw on your experience and you should use things that have worked for you previously. Absolutely should. Now, that episode was also known for something else. <laughs> and what was that, Barb? That was the first episode in which hearts melted because Crane wore, for the very first time, skinny jeans. <laughs> so... People may not remember the particulars of the lantern, but they're going to definitely remember the skinny jeans. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we also got another uh, behind-the-scenes tweet that contained a little video that occurred during the filming. While the cast and crew were trying to film Malcolm looking for Job in the pasture, 
A horse came over the rise of the hill, galloping down in front of the camera's long shot. And so you got this horse just running around in the shot the whole time. <laughs> and you could hear, you could hear the crew just laughing in the background. <laughs> but the other funny thing is you can hear the cows mooing and the horses neighing. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, these guys really have their work cut out for them because they've got to cut out all this background noise before they put in the sounds that we really hear in the episode. And, and it's like they're working in the middle of this great big pasture. It was absolutely hysterical. So we did, we did tweet that out. And so go look for that in, in our tweets from Friday evening and yes. you can go see it. It's, it is just so funny. And the actor who plays Malcolm, Jeremy Davies, he's just standing there like, what am I supposed to do with this horse? <laughs> yeah. Not like you can, uh, run it off the set real quick. Not particularly. <laughs> like might get uh, yourself uh, in a lot of trouble doing that. All right. Our guest cast, of course, was Kamar De La Reyes as Job, Edwin Hodge as Benjamin Banneker. It was so great to have him back in an episode. And Marty Matulis as Headless Horseman. And he's been one of our regular monsters, having played Sandman, Wendigo, Scarecrow, and Moloch. And, of course, the one, the only, Mark Campbell as George Washington. So, Steve, do you think we should talk about some theories and prophecies now as we look into our crystal balls? Let's do it. Well, this is the halfway point in the season. And it was interesting because this episode almost, in a way, felt like, it felt like a couple things. It felt like it could have been a mid-season finale if they had split winter and spring. Right. Yeah, if it had started in the fall instead of started at the first of the year definitely could have been a mid-season finale yeah and it it also felt in a way as if it was sort of um a moving on type episode so i I almost get the impression that we may be finished at least for this season with a lot of the reminiscing that we've had uh, up to this point and all the different episodes and that now it's going to be full focus on the new team witness for the rest of the season. And I'm going to suspect we may see a little bit more of Molly as well. It's almost, it's like, okay, we just turned the page in the book. This is part two of the book. And now we're going to move forward with fully with our new team. Uh, that Those were just my feelings. It was like closure in a way. Right. It, and I felt exactly the same way about it was it, it felt like this was kind of putting the past behind them and now is moving forward the whole time so yeah it definitely was something that i don't think we'll see sleepy hollow again unless it is a situation where they know in advance when the series is going to end and it can be planned i i would love to see the series end in sleepy hollow yeah, I would agree. But you're asking a whole lot for that to happen. <laughs> right, I agree. Not every show gets to end the way they want it to end. So, all right. And wow, what do we think about Job? And there's it, still got to be something going on, but it sure looks like Dreyfus is winning right now. Okay, so there is no way in the world that Job sold out his master, you know, the devil, Satan, you know, whatever. That is not the case. You know, we've talked about, we talked about this. We talked about Dreyfus. It's like, how can Dreyfus not be smart enough to kind of figure that out? Or maybe he just thinks, because he thinks, well, if I don't die, 
then my soul never goes to the devil. Well, Job right. isn't going to let him out of that contract. No. So I think, again, that Job is basically, he's the con man. He's the person pulling the strings. And I think the Dreyfus is, has just become one of the horsemen of the apocalypse. Ooh, nice thought there. And I think Job hmm. is still alive because, really, are you really going to kill the devil? No. <laughs> not not the way with this show. That's not going to happen. No. But Dreyfus, again, he should have been smart enough to figure this out. Or I don't know. He smoked yeah, you, a few two joints or something in his youth. Yeah. I'm really not too sure what he did, okay? He did something. But, Kids, don't yeah. do drugs. He's done something because he's just, he's really not thinking. No, it's all about him. It is so all about him. He's such a narcissist. <laughs> so I don't know what's going to happen. And then, But I'm also not 100% convinced. So he is definitely immortal. Right. Because the spell, I don't know if it 100% took or if he only got part of the power. Yeah, I've seen that Sleepy Hollow didn't disintegrate and everybody die in town. It couldn't have reached maximum power at all. The explosion stopped that. Yeah, and then if we think about Dreyfus, uh, okay, so let's say that he's immortal and he can just live forever. Well, he's not going to care about Crane or Headless, right? He's no. just going to go on living his life. He's going to be, oh, happy, I live forever. So that's why he's not off the hook because he's around for the second half of the season. So I think that Job is going to kind of reappear and say, okay, guess what? You have some new responsibilities, including right. a responsibility to wipe out the witnesses. So that's too bad. You signed up for this and I own you now. You're mine. Right. <clears throat> Feel uh -huh. an appropriate word here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we know that there are four horsemen. There's the horsemen of, for conquest, for war, for famine, and for death. Okay. So death was headless and right. death still is headless as far as we're concerned, right? Yep. Okay. War was. Jeremy Crane, a.k.a. Henry Parrish. But is he really gone, vaporized, poofed? I don't know. I wouldn't count on it. <laughs> I know. Now, we've seen Conquest before, but we don't know who that is. Right. So does that leave Malcolm to be famine? Or could he take Henry's spot at being the horseman of war if Henry really did end up poofed somewhere? Because we know that each horseman was a human who gave their soul to Moloch. Right. That's what we've learned. And okay, so the other thing I'm going to say in early episodes, the only picture that we saw of Famine was he was, Famine was wearing a cloak. Right. But it had a hood. So it wasn't exactly yeah. like Malcolm's fashion statement with his Dracula no. cape. Yeah. <laughs> but it could work, maybe. Yeah, yeah very maybe. possibly. So I don't know. So he's a horseman or he's not yet immortal. I don't know. Or maybe he's a horseman. He'll he'll be told that he'll be made immortal, a hundred percent immortal, when he does his job and kills the witnesses. Right. Who knows, folks? Tell us what you think. Let us know yes. what you think, please. Love to hear it. Okay. Are we? I think we're kind of in agreement with what Crane was thinking when he notices George Washington's head on the quarter. Are we? What do you well, think he was thinking? Actually, I kind of saw it as. Him thinking, what other things do I not know that might help me in the future kind of thing? It's like, would things have been different if I would have known that I was a witness beforehand or not? And what other new things do am I going to find out? So I think he was more focused on the future things instead of the past things. Yeah. Okay. So Diana walked up to him and she thought, oh, 
you know, you're looking at this and you're thinking about the betrayal. And he said, no. Right. And I, and I don't think he was. And yet when I, and that's an interesting theory on your part that he could be looking at what kind of future things, because I, when he looked at that, it was like he stopped and looked like, wait a minute, as if something had registered, if he remembered something. And I was wondering if perhaps he realized that there was something that was just eluding him, something that he had heard or seen, some other piece of information, a letter he had read maybe one time that he couldn't quite bring to mind that maybe that what Dreyfus was saying wasn't necessarily 100% true. Hmm. And if you stop and think about it, I'm going to have to go back and look, because when did George Washington talk with Betsy Ross and write that letter? Was it after the battle? Was it before the battle? Right. Okay, so that's why I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. No, he knew I was going to be there. He wrote me this letter. I don't know if it was that or something else, but it was almost as if he was like, wait a minute, something doesn't add up and I can't quite put my finger on it right now. Right. So it could be either, but I don't think that it, I agree. I don't think it was betrayal. I think, so I think it's either what you're saying or what I'm saying or a combination of both. Who knows? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) We'll find out. But in the meantime, Steve, what kind of great words float off the lips of our characters this week in our what are we going to, are we going to call them witnessisms or what now? Cause they're, they're, they're not ickyisms should. anymore. No, not completely. That's for sure. All right. Yeah. We probably ought to call them witnessisms. In my day, a road trip required more than simply a credit card. You needed the skill to hunt game, to set a snare, skin, gut and prepare a carcass, build a smokehouse, procure salt, vinegar and chicory. That is how you made a Slim Jim. Oh, my gosh. I know. That was like... <laughs> and, Diana, and Diana comes right back at him. Check your raccoon tail at the door, Daniel Boone. I know. That was wonderful, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. That was so funny. because we And we did have a, a that Daniel Boone call out in uh, one of the episodes, too. Yes. That was hysterical. <laughs> that, that made me think of that, and I just started laughing. And then, of course, Crane drinks his Slurpee just a little too fast and goes... Oh, I believe this is what is known as a brain freeze. Even it hurts. And of course, we get Diana's great line as they walk into the archives. So this is Crane's man cave. Oh, nice. <laughs> and probably Alex's best line of the episode was as they're getting to Jenny's stash. Because you weren't born a furioso style combat boot wearing chip shouldering badass were you and she gets to look she's okay maybe you were yeah i know that was so good and when crane and diana get to the gravesite, as promised one sphinxian riddle can you solve it can i yes it is a banneker design i'll just need one moment to translate the cipher yeah he was a little <laughs> insulted when she asked him if he could solve yeah, it you solve it <laughs> you say what well, of course I can <laughs> solve. And, of course, he had two great lines at Abby's grave. And what else is new in the world with the world? A Hogwarts theme park has opened. I have ordered a metric ton of Ravenclaw attire from the Internet. Oh, that was so funny. You know, and I saw a couple of people on Twitter saying, oh, that was opened ages ago. But the Universal Studios one in California was only opened this past year. Right. 
And of course, we can't forget, as for your New York Metropolitans, this year they have a fierce rivalry with those grizzly cubs of Chicago. Nice. And of course, oh, I found a merchant on Main Street selling these. A headless bobblehead. Wonders never cease. No, they don't. (laughs) All right. You've got a great history lesson for us again, Barb? Yeah, this time we're going to talk about the Sphinx. So Sphinx, a mythological creature with a lion's body and a human head and sometimes the wings of the bird, is an important image in Egyptian and Greek art and legend. The word is believed to come from a Greek verb meaning to bind or to squeeze. Ooh, it was believed to be treacherous and merciless, and I think arrows that would disintegrate you would qualify for that. Yep. This deadly version of a Sphinx appears in the myth and drama of Oedipus. Unlike the Greek Sphinx, which was a woman, the Egyptian Sphinx is typically shown as a man. In addition, the Egyptian Sphinx was viewed as benevolent, but having a ferocious strength similar to the malevolent Greek version, and both were thought of as guardians often flanking the entrances to temples. The winged Sphinx of Boeotian Thebes was said to have terrorized people by demanding the answer to a riddle taught to her by the muses and devouring a man each time it was answered incorrectly. The riddle was, what is it that has one voice and yet becomes four-footed and two-footed and three-footed? All right, sleepyheads, here's the answer. Eventually, Oedipus gave the proper answer. Man, who crawls on all fours in infancy, walks on two feet when grown, and leads on a staff in old age. Bested at last, the tale continues, the Sphinx then threw herself from her high rock and died. An alternative version tells that she devoured herself. Hmm, I wonder if she was tasty. <laughs> like chicken. Everything tastes like chicken. <laughs> Sphinxes are generally associated with architectural structures such as royal tombs or religious temples. The oldest known Sphinx was found in Turkey and was dated to 9500 B.C. The largest and most famous Sphinx is the Great Sphinx of Giza, situated on the Giza Plateau adjacent to the Great Pyramids of Giza. Although the date of its construction is uncertain, the head of the Great Sphinx is now believed to be that of the pharaoh Khafra. The inclusion of these figures in tomb and temple complexes quickly became their traditional, and many pharaohs had their heads carved atop the guardian statues for their tombs to show their close relationship with the powerful solar deity Sekhmet Alionis. The Great Sphinx has become an emblem of Egypt, frequently appearing on its stamps, coins, and official documents. And I'm going to include links in the show notes to the two sources for this, uh, Wikipedia and Encyclopedia Britannica. Another great history lesson there, Barb. Thank you, Steve. So, Steve, did we get any feedback this week? Oh, yes, we did. And we've got Justina on the audio, and here she is. Hi, Barb and Steve. Wow, that is how you do an episode. I liked it so much better than last week, which I kind of figured that I would because they were going home to Sleepy Hollow, and it was even cooler than I expected. All those fun flashbacks to remind us of days gone by, and I love watching this new team really come together. Every week, it seems like they have more and more chemistry. My favorite parts were... The action scenes with the Sphinx, the Headless Horseman, and Crane having a conversation with Abby. I wonder how many people died for that ritual. They said a lot of people were going to die, and then they blew up the structure so that the ritual couldn't exactly finish. So a few people in the 
close area did have the life force sucked out of them, and I think the ritual at least partially worked, because I saw the blood turn into that green elixir, and Dreyfus took some and survived the explosion. So I still am not very invested in this character, but I guess I better get used to him, because he appears to be immortal, and we appear to have defeated Headless once and for all. But I bet now Dreyfus will cause us some supernatural trouble. I loved putting Headless to rest, though, by telling Abby the story and leaving her a headless non-bobblehead. Non-head bobble? I don't know. How does that work? It's a headless figure and a bobble. So they sort of skated over the death toll element in this episode, but I loved so much of it. I'm going to give it 10 out of 10 tons of Ravenclaw merchandise purchased off the internet. Now we know what house Crane thinks he should be sorted into. How fun is that? Have a great week. Yes, Justina, the team definitely did get a whole lot more chemistry in this episode. And she liked the Sphinx and Headless. And she wondered how many people died during that life force, too. So I think, you know, we're not the only ones who are a little perplexed by that. Right. Yeah. And the bobblehead was just awesome. But she's right. What do you call it? If it doesn't have a head, how can it be a bobblehead? <laughs> it's a bobble. It's a bobble body. It's or, a bobble horseman. I don't know. But it's not a bobble head. It's headless. Ha <laughs> ha. It's a bobbleless head. A bobbleless head. Yes, that's it. <laughs> and of course, she was extremely excited to find out which house Crane is in. He's Raven's Claw. Yes. All right. We also got some feedback on Facebook. We'll start with Linda Trent Beck. Linda said, I like they used this episode to cement the new team witness. I continue to like this team better. First couple of years was just toes in the water. Now we're swimming in Great White's pool. Ooh. Funniest thing last night was the bobblehead. Everybody loved the bobblehead. <laughs> yes. And Kelly Bean, great episode. I give it nine headless bobbleheads. I love the teamwork and the flashbacks. The end was a little anticlimactic because I just knew Dreyfus wasn't dead. The one thing I wonder, though, is when Washington orchestrated the Ichabod headless fight on the Philosopher's Stone in the past, did someone else become immortal? Perhaps Washington himself? Stranger things have happened on this show. Indeed, they yeah, you, have. You don't know what happened. You know that it mixed, but did someone else have an incantation that, you know, and it's possible Katrina was a witch? Who yep. knows? Who knows? And we got some... Feedback on our GSM feedback page from Julie again. She said, tonight was bittersweet. It was good to see so many callbacks to Abby and Joe, but also sad. You could tell that poor Jenny was really hurting being back in her hometown. And Ichabod's chat with Abby was very touching. Absolutely. I knew he'd identify himself as a Ravenclaw. I, had, I thought he was going to be a Gryffindor. Uh, but <laughs> Julie says, I'm a Ravenclaw myself and we value our intelligence and are known to be witty, wise, and unique, which fits Ichabod to a T. That's so cute. While we're on Hogwarts issues, I'd say that Diana Diana's definitely a Gryffindor. She's both brave and determined. Jake is 100% Hufflepuff. He's cute. He really is. Both loyal and hardworking, he is. Alex strikes me as a Slytherin with Ravenclaw tendencies. I could see that. She's definitely clever enough to come up with these toys and certainly has the pride Slytherins are known for. As for Job, I don't think he's 100% immortal, but I'm thinking he could be the new horseman of death since it's very unclear as to what happened to Headless and Malcolm. But I could be wrong like I was with the stone. 
What a shocker that was. Never imagined Washington would do something like that. Neither did we. All this time, I thought it was Katrina's spell and not the Philosopher's Stone. I wonder how long the writers were sitting on that nugget before telling us the whole story about that day. Once again, another great episode. I give it eight Sphinx Demons. All right. Thanks a lot, Julie. Yeah, uh, yes. And our Twitter Facebook question of the week, what has Dreyfus become? Yeah, well, so Barb, Barb kind of messed up. This is like, don't don't tweet when you're half asleep, right? <laughs> so because I originally typed out, um, what has Job become? You know, immortal, a horseman, something else. And then it's like, I start and then I threw it on the Facebook page. and I looked at that and I'm like, oh, no, that's not right. <laughs> no, no, it's Dreyfus, Dreyfus, not Job. So we probably got a mix of, of answers on this one. <laughs> Just a few. Uh, Julie Gilbert, I'm leaning toward the new horseman of death. Justina, good call, Julie. That's what I think, too. Linda, yeah, Job ended up in the ultimate bug zapper. Wasn't that I great? With the others. That's great. Yeah, we've been ready for a new horseman. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> we'll have to remember that one, Linda. Yes. Kelly Beam, I'm not sure about Job, but I wonder who Washington was trying to use the Philosopher's Stone on. See, she thinks I, that she's just like Julie. Yeah. Uh-huh. uh-huh. I got the feeling when Ichabod looked at Washington on the corner that perhaps Washington himself became immortal and perhaps he will show up later. Or were they saying that's how Ichabod and Headless were able to survive? I thought it was due to Katrina's magic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Julie comes back again and says, actually, Washington used the stone on Ichabod. I thought it was Katrina's spell like we all did. But they dropped a quarter-sized bomb on us this week regarding the whole Ichabod going against Headless back in 1781 thing. Wow. Yeah, we have to agree with you there. That's that's something they might have to revisit to clarify. Yeah, because if he's immortal, wow, that would be stunning. He wouldn't have aged much in three years. Right. They're going to be coming through his hair looking for gray for gray ones is what's going to happen. Wow. That's... Yeah. Uh, we had so much Twitter conversation on Friday evening. There was just way too much to include. But thanks to everyone who was who was out there tweeting and getting Sleepy Hollow to trend. That was fantastic. Yes, it was. And this week's shout outs go to M. Raven Metzner, Sleepy Hollow Riders, Philip Isco, Joe Webb, Maria Chrisholm, Sleepy Hollow Attic, Tom Misson Fans, Tara Bennett, Debbie Lamb, James and Jamie, Keys, Pam Woods, Lawrence Griffin, TV Eskimo, Pretty P, Jennifer, Michelle McKeever, Kathleen A, Pamela Edwards, Eric Simmons, Justina, Danny, Deb K, KMH, Annette Nugget, Peace, Love, and Hope, Tracy, The Yankee Pope, Vera Hines, Charlene and Lofton, Desiree, Polly T, Ann Heck, Judy, Lane, Diana L, Rebecca Mary, Ari McGowan, Natalia Borisova, Linda TB, Julie G, Kelly Bream, and Barbara McComber. How can they get a hold of us, Barb? Okay, there are several ways they can do that, Steve. Our voicemail number is 304-837-2278, or you can go to the goldspiralmedia.com slash feedback page, where you can use the speak pipe widget on the right side of the page to record audio, or you can typey-typey out your feedback on the form. You can even attach an audio feedback. Now, our feedback deadline is Saturday, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You can also find us on Facebook on the Witness Prophecies page, or you can interact with us on Twitter at Witness Prof GSM. Steve is at Sal, your Steve. 
and I am at Tangier 14. All right, we've come to that time of the podcast where we discuss our visions of the future and future episodes, so if you don't want to be spoiled, run. Run as if one of the Sphinx's arrows is coming right straight to your back. All right, next week, episode seven, Loco Parentis. Molly's father returns on an all-new Sleepy Hollow. Just before Molly's 11th birthday, her father returns from duty. As Diana begins to wonder if her ex might be ready to be part of her daughter's life full-time, the team has a shocking realization. <laughs> yep, daddy's blood is in the line. Could be. Okay, and then episode eight is going to be on Friday, February the 24th. Sick burn. A curse goes viral. When internet sensation Logan McDonald comes to town, a supernatural infection hits via a viral video. Meanwhile, Molly has a frightening vision that could predict a bleak future. Can the team cure the curse before it takes over the town? And this is where we have Robbie Kay, uh, who is going to play Logan McDonald. And this should be interesting because if, if it's a viral video or video type curse, that almost reminds me a little bit of one of the Fringe episodes. Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. So we'll see how this all plays out. And episode nine, Child's Play. And this was a twist. When a monster appears that resembles Molly's childhood imaginary friend, Diana realizes her daughter's life as a witness will be anything but normal. Meanwhile, Molly gets her chance to see the vault for the first time in the all-new Child's Play, airing March 3rd. Oh, very good. Yes, Molly needs to become friends with Alex and Jake. Yes. Yes, so this is going to be good. This we've we've been waiting for this introduction. Excellent. Yes, we have. Yes. Now the twist from what I had found out was yes, that there was a child that drew and the monster came to life. We didn't know it was Molly who had done that and actually was her imaginary friend, no less. But that makes sense because of her sketchbook. Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. It really does. Yeah. And that's going to be on March the 3rd. So we are running these, it looks like these are going to run straight through because after that there would only be four episodes left. So it, I'm guessing we're going to run straight through March. Yep. Number 10, we only have a title that is Insatiable. 11 is The Way of the Gun. Number 12 is Tomorrow. And I think, Steve, you had a little bit of information about this one as well. Yes, this one is a look at the near future if Dreyfus does succeed, and we should see the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and should be a great creepy set. Ooh, exciting. Yes, and the season finale, episode 13, is entitled Freedom. And we want to remind you once again, if you want to catch up on some great season one and two stories and monsters, Go out and pick up a copy of Sleepy Hollow, Creating Heroes, Demons, and Monsters, the official making of book by Tara Bennett and Paul Terry. It's great. And we did a review on that uh, about a year ago, I think, Steve. Yeah, about yeah, a year it ago. Was in between the uh, fall break and starting back up in the spring. Right. So, yeah, pick up your copy if you don't have it. It's, it's just a really lovely, lovely piece if you're a fan of the show. It is. Please review us and rate us on iTunes with good ratings and reviews. It helps other fans of the show find us as there are other Sleepy Hollow podcasts out there. So subscribe in iTunes to any GSM podcast. Go to goldenspiralmedia.com slash iTunes. Tell your friends and hope you're enjoying our podcast. 
This is Steve. And but for all the sorrow I experienced, there was also unrivaled friendship, camaraderie, and of course, my introduction to this infinitely curious modern world. And this is Barb signing out. And I thought you might like to know that whilst I missed you terribly, I'm not alone. Until next, we meet. See you next week, sleepyheads.